I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded, an NPR podcast where we take a story from the news and go deep. Navpreet Sasi is an ER doctor from Toronto. People call him Dr. Nav. A couple years ago, he went on his first mission for Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, also known as Doctors Without Borders. These are these incredible people who are like the first ones to get there when there's a war, earthquake, or an outbreak of Ebola, or a famine. Dr. Nav was posted at a hospital in Yemen, right on the front line of Yemen's civil war. One day, he was working in the emergency room. I was rounding, I was doing my rounds, daily rounds in the hospital and seeing, seeing patients. Um, and while that was happening, there was sort of heavy fighting going on outside. And then this happened. There was sort of a, a really loud, uh, really loud sort of boom. Uh, and I, I actually, my sort of my initial thought was, whoa, something had just kind of hit like just outside us. What I didn't realize was that there actually, there was all this glass that had cracked uh, just to the window that was not too far from me, maybe 10, 15 feet to my right. A mortar had hit the hospital and broke that glass window. When I looked behind me, there was smoke everywhere. And, and then, like, in those situations, everything kind of goes really slowly. Nav eventually gets himself together and runs to a safe room at the back of the hospital. He says MSF was not the target of this mortar. It was an accident. This is what's been happening to a lot of MSF hospitals all around the world. Another Médecins Sans Frontières hospital has been leveled by airstrikes. Doctors Without Borders said that their hospital was partially destroyed by barrel bombs. Says deadly attacks appear to have been deliberate. Group says 27 people were killed in an airstrike. That, that one killed at least 23 people. And when these attacks happen, sometimes, of course, the hospital has to close. And then all the people in these places, Afghanistan, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Syria will now have no access to health care. They basically lose their lifeline. That's what happened at NAV's hospital in Yemen. We got to a point where we thought that the risks and the benefits were, were not balancing out anymore, and we were taking too high of a risk. So they decided to leave. There were Yemeni doctors who stayed. But now all the people in this part of Yemen have been left without any help from MSF's highly trained international staff. NAV went home for a while. And then he signed up for another mission with MSF in South Sudan. What we wanted to do is get inside one of these hospitals and stay a while. We wanted to know what it's like to work there day after day. I mean, working in a hospital is hard enough, let alone in a place where you don't speak the language and a mortar might hit you. Who are these people who get bombed while they're doing their work, but keep coming back? So we sign up for a week in an MSF hospital in South Sudan. That country has just come out of its own brutal civil war. We spend a lot of time with the people who work there. And we also spend a lot of time with one patient. One tiny little patient whose case tells us a lot about why these people do the work they do. HubSpot supports Embedded because they love great stories. That's all. HubSpot wants to get back to the episode early, too. So that's what we'll do.
So the idea to do this story came from one of my favorite reporters at NPR, Jason Bobian. He covers global health, and he is the one who arranged our trip to South Sudan with MSF. Here's Jason. The place we decide to go is called Bentiu. It's a place that saw a lot of fighting during South Sudan's civil war. And now it has the largest refugee camp in the country. 120,000 people are crammed into this camp. It's basically a small city. And inside that camp is a 170-bed hospital that's basically a bunch of tents. So we go straight to the busiest tent in the hospital. It's the ward for malnourished children. There's 20 or so beds. Families are there with their kids. Some of the moms are actually sleeping under the kids' beds. The walls and ceilings are white plastic tarps that let in a lot of light. There are only two doctors in this entire hospital. Dr. Nav, who you heard at the beginning, and Dr. Yiska. Her full name is Yiska Steensma. She's a pediatrician from Holland. She's here on a six-month mission, as they say at MSF. Hi there. Hey. How are you? Good. Do you mind if I stay near you a little bit while you're doing rounds? Yeah, sure. It's okay? Okay. Back at home, Dr. Yiska, that's how they do it at MSF, they use their first names, works at a major research hospital in Amsterdam. When she's done in South Sudan, she's going on a fellowship at Cambridge. She says she's the kind of person who likes extremes. Her idea of a vacation is camping on glaciers. She's working in this ward for malnourished kids. She is clearly very good at this. She's slowly starting to improve. Yeah, and her sister's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> this is how Yiska communicates with these patients. She doesn't speak the local language, Nuer, but still she tries to talk to the mothers and the siblings. So the patients will get to know her and maybe trust her. Right in the middle of the ward where Dr. Yiska works is this baby. She's in a bed, she's naked, except for a necklace of red and white beads. And then she has this feeding tube that's taped to her cheek. The hospital staff keeps wiping her down with wet cotton balls to try to pull down her fever. One of the hospital workers, Michael, says she's unconscious. MSF has asked us for security reasons to only use the first names of their South Sudanese staff. But this confusion has just happened uh, today. The unconsciousness happened today. Uh-huh. The baby is named Nignoni. She's malnourished, and she has malaria and a respiratory problem. She wheezes whenever she breathes. Earlier that morning, there was a moment when she was getting cold and didn't have a clear pulse. They put her on an IV and stabilized her. Now, she's not waking up. Is this the mother? And is this her mother? Yeah, we talk- Could we talk to her? It's OK? OK. okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so when did they come to the, to the camp? They came uh, May last year. Yeah, May last year they came. The baby and her mother and the rest of their family ran away from their home when the fighting started. In South Sudan, a lot of houses are made of mud and reed walls, and they have these thatched roofs. And a lot of them got torched in the war. People completely fled their villages. Many women were raped. Tens of thousands of people were killed. So a lot of people in the refugee camp that surrounds this hospital are too afraid to go back home. This sick baby is the youngest in the family. She's one of three kids. The rest of her family comes and goes to her bedside throughout the day. Is this the first time the child has been in the hospital? It's the first time she has been in the hospital. What about her other children? Have they ever been sick? 
Charlie is severe like that, you know, the mother is still disinterested, thought that maybe the child will not be survived and whatever. That's why he's not willing to talk. He's basically saying the baby's mother is too overwhelmed to talk anymore right now. But she stays close to the bed. She's wearing a long red dress that at one time was probably nice, but now it's been dulled by the dust of the refugee camp. Tell her we're sorry. We know it's difficult. We move away from the mom and the other kids and stand on the foot of the sick child's bed. Is the temperature going changing? Yeah, I keep the uh, temperature looking, so I observe. He's taking the temperature now? Yeah. It's going up. It went back up, yeah. yeah. So Dr. Yiska is still doing her rounds in the ward for malnourished kids. Some of these kids are so small, they're getting weighed in what looks like a big plastic salad bowl with a scale attached. Eventually, Yiska comes back to the baby, Nyanyoni. She was unconscious before, but now we realize she's awake. I just went, we were watching this other patient, and she's awake, and that's great. <laughs> Yiska and I go talk to John. He's the South Sudanese nurse who runs the intensive feeding ward for malnourished kids. It's good. She looks tired, but she's awake, yeah? It's good, no? Is the fever down? Uh, fever before is done, and now it is up again. Again. Uh. Down, then up, huh? Down, then up. Now we continue to control fevers again. Yeah. Because our main problem now is fever. She's awake. A little bit awake. It's so clear how you can get really wrapped up into the drama of it really fast. The staff at this hospital has seen so much. They're used to these ups and downs. I am clearly new at this. It's good. She's awake. Hello, she's awake. Yeah, this is good, right? It's very good. Yeah. It is kind of amazing, though. I mean, seeing these other kids that are watching, these are family members, and, and really, quite frankly, it's you know the question of whether they're going to have a cousin or a sibling later in life is in the balance right here, right now. You know, it's kind of amazing when you think about it. This kid would not be surviving if this hospital wasn't here right now. It's a roller coaster, even for Dr. Yiska. At one point, later on, I see her just sit down, looking overwhelmed, and then just walk out of the tent for a minute. She does this sometimes, just takes a break, goes to her tent or goes and talks to one of the other MSF staffers. I mean, these, these people are doctors and nurses. They're pros. But still, this work has got to get to you. It's already gotten to us. Even when they're not doing rounds, the doctors here hardly ever stop working. They're on call every other night. They have a walkie-talkie blaring next to their head so it's hard to sleep. You may have to get up at any moment and run to the hospital. And it's always hot here, over 110 degrees most days. You're sweating constantly and it feels impossible to drink enough water. Also, you're not allowed out. The international staff spend most of their time inside the hospital compound. Remember, the refugee camp that surrounds this hospital, it's like a city. There's petty crime, and MSF doesn't want their people to just go out for a walk. You have to have some reason to go out of the hospital. 
Everybody lives in tents, usually with a roommate. They share showers, pit toilets. And then there's the food, endless pots of lentils. One of the Canadians has started putting maple syrup on her lentils and insisting it makes them fabulous. So, remember Dr. Nav, the doctor you heard about at the beginning of the story? How's it going this morning with all that other stuff? Right now, he's on one of the isolation wards at the hospital. Today, he's doing the rounds of the adults. He's checking on a woman with this horrific rash that's covering her entire body. How's the rash? Can you just, how's the rash? This woman just got to the refugee camp. Before that, she says she was hiding out for 10 months in a swamp. That's because soldiers came and destroyed her village. She says she would spend the daylight hours in the water with just her head above the surface, like a hippo, to avoid the gunmen who were murdering and attacking people in the surrounding countryside. At night, she and some of the other women would climb out to dry land to sleep and to try to get something to eat. Now, Dr. Nav says he's very worried that her wounds could get infected. We don't live in a very clean environment. I mean, flies are going in and out of her wounds, and we can't really stop that except to encourage her to be in a mosquito net most of the time. But her risk of like getting a secondary infection is quite high, which is why we just give her antibiotics. Antibiotics and a skin cream. So she should put it over any place that's like scabbed or painful or open. Just cover, 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 cover. Dr. Nav happens to have a lot of this skin cream, but there are shortages of a lot of other supplies. The roads to the hospital are either washed out or unsafe most of the year, so everything, even lab tests, have to get flown in and out by plane. So like, uh, yeah, so we don't always have all the medicines that we, that we would like for all of the patients that we see. Um, although I, I would say that we have like a lot here. I'm very impressed with what we do have, but we, we never have everything, right? And then investigating wise, we're limited in what we can investigate for, right? We only have a few lab tests. Nav is very clinical about all of his cases. A lot of these people have had it way worse than anything he's ever been through, even Yemen. Nav has been here in South Sudan for a while. He's about halfway through his mission. One way he deals with it is to try to laugh, ribbing the Scottish guy about his new haircut, joking about the broken air conditioner. But still, sometimes it's just really tough. I mean, then there's like a cumulative like emotional wear, for sure. I mean, we, we, we deal with uh, I mean, a lot of death, right? A lot of death. Much more than we're used to seeing at home, by far. Here, a child dies, uh, so almost every, it feels like almost every day. The one individual case might not be, you know, you might be able to deal with it and feel okay with it, but dealing with that every day, the, I mean, the constant drain of that definitely builds up. Later, Dr. Nav tells us about that mission in Yemen back in 2014. Turns out when MSF decided to pull out all its international staff, they needed one person to stay to the end. And Nav volunteered to be that person. We asked him, why? Personally, I was asking myself that too. Like this, I, I said, wow, this is, pretty, this is a pretty high-risk situation that's escalating. So um, do I want to leave? Should I leave? Should I go? Uh, I mean, I think, yeah, and, and like, why are, and, and I didn't in, at that point, and I was like, well, why don't I want to go? I think, like, I think in my own mind, maybe I downplayed the risk a little bit too, uh, and maybe upplayed up the responsibility aspect of it, because I, cause I felt like that was important. Like, it's a really hard job, but I think, uh, I know I can do it, and so, and because I know I can do it, and because I know the need is there, it's hard not to be involved in something like that when you know what's out there. 
So it's pretty clear why Nav wants to do this work. If he wasn't here, more people would die. But how do other people, the other doctors and medical staff, deal with all the misery without losing their minds? That's what we want to ask Yeska. And also, what about that tiny patient, Nignoni, the baby from the first day with malnutrition and malaria and that respiratory disease, the baby who woke up after being unconscious? We want to know what will happen to her. We'd like to say a quick thank you to one of our sponsors who brings us the following message, Stamps.com. Stamps.com helps businesses avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. With Stamps.com, you use your own computer and printer to print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier picks it up. No more wasting time going to the post office or wasting money on expensive postage meters. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com for a special offer. A four-week trial, plus postage, and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and type in Embedded. So I am back with Dr. Yiska in the ward for malnourished kids. Local staff have just called her to check on the baby, Nignoni. She was awake, but now things are bad again. The breathing's getting slower and slower. It's a very low blood sugar. Very low. 18. So her blood sugar's dropped way low. Dr. Yiska said, oh shit. She's moving fast. Yiska tells a nurse to hold the baby's leg while she opens a package that contains a really thick needle. It goes into the bone. She has to push the needle into the baby's bone. It's a bone marrow IV. Because the baby's so limp and dehydrated, they couldn't get a vein in her wrist. They even tried to get one in her head. That's what they have to do with these kids. After this needle goes into the bone, Yiska does not look happy. The baby should have reacted, but she didn't. The baby does start getting the fluids she needs, and her breathing does even out. So she's breathing slowly. Yeah, yeah. She's being quiet. Yeah. Are her eyes open again? No, no, not now, yeah. but, but it's actually too low. So oh, it's a low. sign of shock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's a little bit better, but really, she's not. And it all just seems so unfair. This baby didn't do anything in South Sudan's civil war. She was born, and then she didn't get enough to eat. And now this. It's going to be hard to not sit here all day. This baby was definitely going to die. When she was putting in the IV. Basically when she was shoving a needle into this girl's leg bone. And the girl didn't react. I just can't seem to leave. So I sit there for about half an hour. And then this happens. Oh, she's opening her eyes. Oh. The nurse says the baby is awake and asking for water. Like, with words. Because it turns out she's not a baby. She's three years. She's three years old. She's just so small. She only weighs 15 pounds that this whole time I and a certified medical professional both thought she was a baby. Which means her situation is probably even worse than I thought. But right now, she is drinking water and she is crying. And that is good. 
All right. Complaining? This is good. Yiska is clearly affected by sick patients like this. You can see it in her face. Smiling like crazy when things go right, all twisted up and worried when they don't. Yiska tells Kelly it was really hard when she first got to this hospital. I think the, the beginning was the most intense. The just getting used to the mortality, to the children dying, to um, every two or three nights on call. Um, big hospital. Yeah, the whole environment. I remember at first I did have nightmares the first, uh, the first week, just not really feeling comfortable here. Um, but that lasted you know, the first week, I think. Hmm. I actually thought last week, I don't want to leave here. I can't imagine going back to, to Amsterdam and being, being at work again in you know, an academic hospital. Now you've crossed no, the line just, where you can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I feel happy being here. I mean, it's hard work. Uh, you've seen it, and it's really, really frustrating. It has really high highs and deep lows, but uh, especially when the moms are appreciative of it, that's just really, really nice. Yeah. To see the children, you know, they get their cheeks and their smiles back, and the moms are happy, that's just wonderful. And so many of them get, get really, really like, better. Right. They don't die. Yeah, every other day, or maybe every day, Somebody does die, but we, we, can, we can save so many. But yeah, here sometimes you do think, okay, yeah. there's just not, not enough for these children. And sometimes if you die and you write down cause of death, then sometimes I do think, born in Sassadam. So we're lucky, yeah. Uh, is that why you do this work, I ask? To remind yourself you're lucky? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I do feel very lucky, yeah. The next day is a Sunday. Yiska hasn't had a day off in a long time. She goes for a run, goes to the back of the compound and sings. She's in an a cappella group back home. She Skypes with her friends. Her being off means Dr. Nav is the one who's on duty. I meet up with him in the intensive feeding ward, and he's asking the staff about Nyanyoni. So what happened last night, do you know? Yeah, with her. Any problems or anything you know about? Can we hand over? Yeah, if you feel her feet, they're like ice cold, huh? It's bad. Again, she just like really shut down peripherally. Nav says it is not looking good. Yeah, she's still, I mean, the, the one good thing, she's got some strength in her, she'll still kind of respond a little bit if you, you know, she'll kind of look at you, you kind of get her attention. Earlier she was sitting up a little bit with mom, but still very, very drowsy. Um, yeah. yeah, she looks worse. Yeah, she, she, even throughout the day, she's gotten a little worse than she was this morning, so it's, yeah, yeah it's unfortunate, yeah. But we still, you know, I never, we don't give up hope until sure. there's no hope left. Yeah. Yeah. So that's her. Okay. Um, she's the sickest person on the on the ward, probably in the hospital right now. Yeah. And let's just look at her medicines here. So we finished erythromycin clocks. She finished her malaria medicines today. 
We're gonna give her some fluids more today. Can we do another uh, reason wall today? Another one? While all this is happening, Mignoni's mother is sitting on the bed next to her. She's not talking to anyone. Her face is angry, then blank, then just really sad. The doctors say when a child starts to deteriorate in the hospital, the parents can't help but blame it on the hospital. Nav tells the staff to keep a close eye on the girl, and then he has to go deal with all the other patients in the hospital. He's the only doctor on duty. A few hours later, someone comes to tell me. An emergency has been called in the girl's ward. Dr. Nav got called to resuscitate the girl. And now I'm staring at the hospital door. Nav walks by and just nods his head. She died. She died. So I'm standing here at the um, the entrance to the hospital because we don't want to, you know, bum rush them during this moment. Um, but it happened. She died. Um, Sunday afternoon. I mean, it's not been looking good for a couple days, right? But it finally happened. A little bit later, I talked to Dr. Nav. He says the girl died of severe malnutrition and severe malaria. When Dr. Yiska finds out the girl died, at first she's upset. She doesn't say it on tape, but she wants to know if there's anything else they could have done. Then later she tells me she's accepted it. She has to believe they did what they could. By the time I go back into the ward, there's another patient in Yignoni's bed. I keep thinking about another thing Yiska told me, that the highs here are so high and the lows are so low. Like, the smallest thing can be amazing after the worst thing happens. Life doesn't feel that way in Amsterdam. Every week, there's this thing the staff does for the kids at the hospital. A Dutch guy named Frank plays his guitar. But pretty soon, the women and the kids hijack Frank's sing-along and start singing South Sudanese songs. More people crowd around. And in that moment, it is so good. All the moms are into it. I'm laughing like an idiot the whole time. All the international staff is there. Nav is blowing up balloons. Everyone's dancing. There are a lot of people in this hospital who are still alive. Two months after we reported this story, soldiers approached the camp that surrounds this hospital 
They lobbed a rocket-propelled grenade into the compound, fired a few shots. South Sudan's civil war is at a lull, but attacks like this still sometimes happen. The MSF staff had to hide in a bunker for 15 minutes or so, and then they finally got the all clear. During that incident, a stray bullet hit a child inside the camp, and that child was treated at the MSF hospital. This story was reported by me, Kelly McEvers, Jason Bobian, and David Gilkey. We didn't hear David because he was too busy taking stunning photographs of the hospital and all the people we met there. You can see them at npr.org slash South Sudan. Do it. The story was produced by Rebecca Hersher and Chris Benderev and edited by Vicki Valentine and Sean Cole with help from Megan Kane, Abby Wendell, and Brent Bachman. Digital production is by Alexander McCall, research help from Will Chase, production help from Ricky Novetsky, Jess Chung, Saxon Baird, and Jacob Cruz, operations help from Angie Hamilton-Lowe, and special thanks to Scott Carrier. Original music in this podcast is by Colin Wamsgans. The show is executive produced by me, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grundman. Our project manager is Kasia Podbielski. You can hear more NPR on your local public radio station on another show I host called All Things Considered. And here's some good news. There's a new season of Invisible coming soon. Listen to a preview at npr.org slash podcasts. Embedded will be back next week where we will hear from a reporter who spent three months in the Arctic. Here she is looking for someone who went missing in the middle of a suicide crisis. Hey, hey. nothing from Julius. Nothing. No. I think I'm going to walk up to his house. Yeah, try that. I'm actually quite worried. Do you know where Julius Nielsen lives? Which house? No. So where is he? And hey, I want to thank every person who has left a review of Embedded in iTunes. It really does matter. Now we want more. Whether you like us or not, we want more reviews. And please, tell your friends about Embedded on social media, on the front lawn, wherever. I'm Kelly McEvers. Thanks.